This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by me. Hi, I'm Tim, the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals and host of the New Evangelicals podcast. Original, I know. We are a Jesus-centered and inclusive community that holds space for the folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and we help people like you leave that cold, dark, and damp basement of evangelical fundamentalism behind to explore the rooms of the Christian tradition together. You can check out our podcast to hear from all kinds of amazing guests who are way smarter than me, and even a few episodes where I get to rant to our podcast producer about how dangerous Christian nationalism is. Ah, good times. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts or slide into our DMs on Instagram at The New Evangelicals. Thanks. Some portion of this population has radicalized and has proven open to uh, moving beyond the boundaries of the rule of law and the rule of the majority in order to stop social changes that they, that they do not like. Um, and Donald Trump, with his flirtation with authoritarianism um, and then his absolute enticement to insurrection on January 6th, he helped to redefine the boundaries. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 4 of Holy Heretics Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Allen Taylor, and I'm delighted to be back with you to kick off a new season and fresh conversations for all of us as we continue to recover from religious fundamentalism and evangelical Christianity. In his book, A Rebirth for Christianity, Alvin Boyd Kuhn wrote, Christianity has persistently claimed that it is the one true religion among all other faiths. Yet the sad fact remains that more untruths have been promulgated in its name than by any other major religion in the civilized world. And today we're seeing this. Christianity is undergoing yet another reformation to move away from some of the lies and untruths that have become so prominent in normative Christianity. We've reached a point here in the West where Our faith is almost completely corrupted. It has been seduced by power and privilege and mostly by white patriarchal nonsense to a point where the average self-proclaimed Christian in America looks nothing like the historical Jesus. We are in desperate need of a rebirth for Christianity, and I think it's going to be led by those of us who are seeking to live out the ethics of Jesus in the modern world. So I invite you to come with us this season as we seek to reclaim the mystery, the wonder, the liberative power, and the capital W way of Jesus. 
But before we jump into this first conversation with Dr. David Gushy, I want to pause and ask for your support and for your consideration as we try to fulfill the needs for season four. I think all of you know that this podcast is 100% listener supported, meaning we rely on individuals like yourself to help cover the out-of-pocket costs to produce the show. And today, uh, we don't have the funding necessary to sustain the show for this season. So I'm hoping that you will help us out and join us either on Patreon or on Substack as a provider and as a supporter. You can subscribe on Substack for $5 a month, or you can join us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And on both platforms, you'll have access to premium content, including articles, online courses, community groups, and a host of other uh, premium content. Simply visit Substack.com slash at Holy Heretics or Patreon.com slash Holy Heretics. All right, well, let's kick off this first leg of the journey, this first episode of a brand new season by talking with Dr. David Gushy. Reverend Professor Dr. David Gushy is Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University in Atlanta, and he is the Chair of Christian Social Ethics at Free University in Amsterdam. Gushy is the elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics, signaling his role as one of America's leading Christian ethicists. He is the author and co-author, editor, or co-editor of more than 28 books and over 175 academic book chapters, journals, articles, and reviews. And his most recognized works include Kingdom Ethics and Changing Our Mind. His most recent book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, is just out. And we are delighted uh, to talk today with Dr. Gushy. Dr. Gushy, welcome back to the show. We talked about 18 months ago. It's really wonderful to have you on again. Thank you for uh, bringing me back on. I enjoyed our last conversation and uh, I'm especially interested in, in your reaction to this new book. Yeah, no, I, I loved our last conversation as well, and uh, hopefully we won't have the technical difficulties. I feel like we had a couple of years ago, but, you know, when we talked, gosh, probably about 18 months ago, and unfortunately, it seems like that things have have honestly only gotten worse since the last time we talked. I mean, today we're talking about your most recent book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, and I don't want to be mean, but I might say from its white evangelical enemies. Um, so let's just kind of start there, maybe jump into the deep end here in terms of how we got to the point where white Christian Americans are the leading uh, demographic toward authoritarianism and anti-democratic ideals. Um, am I making too much of this, or are you seeing this from your seat um, in the academy and from your research and scholarship? Uh, well, it's not only evangelicals, and it's not all evangelicals. Um, it's a certain kind of politically activated evangelical on the hard right, uh, but also um, there are uh, Catholics to be found uh, mm -hmm. in this subculture as well, and and people who who are post Christian, um, but 
somehow Christianity is still functioning as a kind of a tribal marker rather than a religious identity. Hmm. Um, and, and so they add a, they add a different dimension. It's kind of the, the people you saw breaching the Capitol on January 6, 2021, it was a real mix of people. Um, I think broadly characterized by a deeply ferociously negative reaction to every political idea or moral value that they disagree with as embodied in the democratic party or progressive or liberal American, uh, that part of the, of our population. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, an increasing extremism and radicalization, which involves some percentage of them being willing to consider anti-democratic or even violent means to, to prevent things they don't want to have happen and to actualize things they do want to have happen. What's well, interesting what you just described. Uh, this past weekend, I drove back and forth across the great state of Kansas, and it's quite an interesting place. There's not much there except for a lot of really hard right billboards that are linking the Christian faith with Trumpism and the anti-abortion movement. And it feels like that there is a type, if you will, that is um, very conducive to be seduced by this call into um, more radical extremism as it relates to politics and the demographic that I see being a little bit more easy to be enticed into this are white, male, boomer, conservative Christians that feel like that they are losing their place in society as society becomes a little bit less white, a little bit less Christian are we are we seeing this really as a as a retreat from or a fear factor that you know the ground underneath them economically and politically and religiously and socially is is becoming tenuous um, is that part of what is leading them into more extremism I think that's a pretty fair description Gary um, I in the book I talk about various waves of reaction to social changes. In fact, I have chapters on Germany and France in the 19th century and can show that the the feeling of, of terror and negative reaction to modernizing social changes is not new to the U.S. and it doesn't begin in the 1960s. But for us, with our unique history, I think the 60s are a good place to start. If you think about every social change that has happened in this country since the 1960s, generally they were all liberalizing and pluralizing and democratizing changes, Mm. right? So greater freedom for women, uh, for for people to make uh, sexual choices for African-Americans, greater uh, religious diversity and weakening of Christian dominance. the enforcement of disestablishment in like banning state sponsored prayer in schools. That was a huge thing in the early sixties. Um, the gay rights movement, uh, broadening of immigration with a large population coming from the non-European countries. Um, uh, you know, loosening of attitudes on abortion. And then the law changed in 1973 with Roe versus Wade, uh, divorce, uh, doubling in the sixties to the mid seventies. And that fundamentally reshaping, uh, the family, um, even children's rights movement, uh, 
you, you put it all together, you have a a weakening of power for, <laughs> I mean, I lived in a small town in West Tennessee, and I know a weakening of power for the people who were in charge in that town, you might say, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm sure maybe a lot of our listeners will understand exactly who we're talking about, right? <laughs> right. Um, I think it's also interesting that there are regional differences here. It's not just kind of coasts versus um, Midwest or South. It's also urban versus rural. Yeah. Um, and it's also older versus younger. Um, but but part of what I think the boomer era, people who kind of, you know, uh, suck in Fox News or Newsmax or whatever daily, they are disoriented by all kinds of social changes, including the changes in their own children and maybe grandchildren. They're losing control. They don't like it. Now, I would say that that basic description is visible from the late 60s forward. Um, But what that demographic did um, in the mid-70s was to organize, a lot of them organized politically into the Christian right. And the idea was, okay, we will take America back by winning elections through a partnership with the Republican Party. Mm. And uh, some of us are old enough to remember Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and values voters and all of that, right? Yep. Um, but my suggestion is that since the election of Barack Obama, election and re-election, and then the backlash election just barely of Donald Trump, some portion of this population has radicalized and has proven open to uh, moving beyond the boundaries of the rule of law and the rule of the majority in order to stop social changes that they that they do not like. Hmm. Um, and Donald Trump, with his flirtation with authoritarianism um, and then his absolute enticement to insurrection on January 6th, he helped to redefine the boundaries. But even before that, how about when the Proud Boys, he was asked at that debate, about the Proud Boys, and he said, stand back and stand by. Right, yeah. I mean, that was a militia. Right, that was code, right? I mean, he was basically telling them, I'm on your side. And and there'll come a time, and uh, stand back and stand by, we'll call you in. You know, mm-hmm. all political scientists say, as soon as the armed militias come out, then you're, you know, I mean, then you're obviously in the zone of authoritarianism, and you're, and you're at risk of losing democracy. Um, because that, I mean, part of the definition of democracy is that problems are resolved nonviolently. They're resolved uh, through the political process, not with guns. And so, so the way I would say it is negative reaction to modern social changes in the U.S. is at least visible since the 60s, if not before. Um, but the authoritarian turn where, where we might be willing to bring out the guns or overturn an election that's more recent. And I think modern social media, the election of Obama, the election of Trump, uh, the radicalization of of a certain portion of the population, our gun culture, a valorization mm. of apocalyptic language about this is the ultimate election. The stakes could never be higher. All of this has 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 helped to create the environment that we're in now. Mm. And it's not just here, right? I mean, it's this is. 
happening in Europe. Um, it's happening all over the globe where there does feel like that there is a rise in authoritarianism. And I find it fascinating that, you know, we've seen this movie before in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, from your research, and I know you talk about this in your book, can you give some examples of where you see democracy in peril, not just here in the United States, but even around the world? Sure. I, I, um, in terms of contemporary examples, I study uh, several other countries. Um, in Russia, the story is that they never had a democracy. And after communism fell, they had a shot at democracy. But gradually, Putin consolidated power. Now he's been at it about 20 years. And one way he, he has consolidated power is to play the Christian strongman card. Um, and so my chapter on Russia talks about how Putin uh, claims to be the defender of Russian Christian or just European Christian civilization against liberal decadence, most most uh, symbolized by by the gay rights movement, which yeah. is what he picks on the most. And it actually was one of the justifications used for the invasion of Ukraine. Hmm. Um, literally, gay rights parades were, were listed as a reason, stopping gay rights parades that offend the sensibilities of the good Orthodox people of Ukraine. Um, so in Poland, the Law and Justice Party, which has been in power for a while and has another election coming up, um, has, def- has uh, been anti-gay. Uh, um and has has um, done some interesting moves to kind of weaken the independence of the media and weaken the independence of the judiciary, uh, and in other ways thwart democratic norms. Uh, and their agenda has been kind of Polish Catholic traditionalism. In Hungary, Viktor Orban, who is reformed uh, in his supposed faith commitments, has held on to power for twelve years. And he plays Christian strongman um, defending Hungary against the encroachments of Western liberalism. By the way, in all three of these countries, every so often or more than every so often, anti-Semitism is introduced into the mix as well, which is the original ethnic or quasi-ethnic and religious prejudice in, the, in that part of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a chapter on Brazil under Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro was very similar to Trump. Um a uh, authoritarian right-wing strongman supported by a coalition of ultra-conservative Catholics and evangelicals who made anti-liberalism and anti-pluralism and anti-LGBT and anti-modernism and so on. His calling card just barely lost his last election and then helped to foment an insurrection um, Hmm. that failed and has been barred from running again, but he's a very similar force. And I, I described the connections between uh, Trump's people and Bolsonaro and his people. I would describe this without being overly conspiratorial as essentially a linked international movement um, of Christian, Christian here in quotation marks, strong men sharing tactics and strategies and rhetoric um, that has, they have found to be effective in gaining uh, power. And also uh, sharing uh, strategies for weakening democracy when they get when they can get their hands on that kind of power. Hmm. It's agreed that Hungary, for example, at this point, with 12 years of Orban, Hungary is is uh, by international standards, no longer a liberal democracy. 
Wow. It is it is transitioned so far that Freedom House describes them as uh, something like a semi autocracy, semi democracy, because of what Orban has been able to do. Hmm. When everything you just described there feels to me to be in opposition of the way of Jesus, and sadly that Christians, uh, not only here in America but throughout the world, are gravitating toward that you know the man on the white horse, that strong man, as as you said. And when I look at the politics of Jesus, which I do believe that Jesus was incredibly political, uh, I don't think he was partisan, I, but I do believe he was political. And, you know, he talked about, hey, we don't do things like the world does that, you know, they will lord over you. Uh, they will have power over you. They will create hierarchies of division and oppression and marginalization. And when I read the scriptures, I, I see um, a man who did his best to subvert the status quo, to subvert this whole idea that there are those who have and there are those who not who don't have. And, you know, it's just the way of the world. Um, I, I don't really know what my question is beyond the fact that I'm just so frustrated that Christianity has been such a leading uh, demographic within these individuals who are, as you said, these strong men. I mean, is there a way out of this? Is there a way up? Do we? How do we, as a faith movement, backpedal and reintroduce ourselves to the politics of Jesus, which I don't think were a politic of cruelty. I believe that he lived out a politic of compassion. Um. The book really, um, in a sense, has two targets. I mean, you might say the book is written to all people in the countries that are described saying, please, please notice the threat to the democracy and defend your democracy before it's too late, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that level, the agenda is political. I'd like to live in a democracy in five years. I don't know about everybody else, but right. I'd like to live in democracy. I don't want yep. to live in the Trump family dynasty, you know, where no, it's, you right. know, I want to live in a democracy with the rule of law and real elections and things like that. Um, but it's also a call to Christians to remember what it is to follow Jesus in the public life area, mm. but also just more broadly. I think what has gradually evolved is something like what you describe, a kind of, a, well, reactionary, majoritarian, as in we are the majority and we have the right to dominate, often characterized by cruelty and rhetoric and action towards the groups that are seen as less than mm -hmm. um, gay people, women, immigrants, people of color, right? Um, and... Uh, a disdain for the rights of others other than us. Christianity is a kind of a, a grasping for power that has so little as in nothing to do with the Jesus that we meet in the New Testament that, and in fact, one thing I see that's interesting on social media, I think the teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus itself is our best antidote, but it's also most unwelcome. You get into mm. some of these dialogue spaces and say, let me just remind you what Jesus said or did about this. Yeah, oh, he's woke. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's, he's woke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people do not want to hear it. No. Jesus is inconvenient for this kind of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So um, 
on the political front, I'm calling on Christians to retrieve some of our own 400, 500-year-old resources to renew the case for democracy. This is more like like a Reinhold Niebuhr project kind of making an argument for democracy and saying, you know, you don't have to be a liberal to support democracy. The Puritans became, uh, were the first kind of proto-democratic movement in England and the Baptists and the Anabaptists got on board. Eventually, a lot of the other religious communities decided, especially in the U.S. setting, that, man, we need we need freedom, we need rule of law, we need democracy, we need the separation of church and state for the sake of the church and for the sake of the state. And, and then you had the built-in flaw of American democracy was our, was our slavery system. And you also have the resource provided by the, the black democratic tradition in the U.S. that has been calling America to live out the true meaning of its creed since um, the very beginning. Mm. Um, and so I have chapters on each of this, uh, each of these groups the, and, and kind of themes, democratic congregationalism, covenantal politics and the black Christian uh, American democratic tradition to say, hey, we've got resources here for doing better. And then when you actually get under the hood with each of these, there's also a spirit and an ethic that goes with it, too. And it is an ethic that that is able to welcome and celebrate uh, inclusion and diversity precisely in Christian terms, not as an opposition to Christianity. And so the book ends up calling both for a renewal of Christianity and a renewal of our democracy before both are lost to us, I would say. Yeah, and it feels like they're both heading in in the incredibly wrong direction. Well, you also mentioned something in your book that you describe as Nazified quasi-Christianity. Um, what What is that and where do you see this quote, Nazified quasi-Christianity played out here in the public square? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, provocative language. In the book, I, um, I am actually describing what was happening in Germany just before the rise of the Nazis and certain specific figures who I discuss um, who wanted to deploy Christianity as a unifying factor for the German nationalism that they were working on. Mm -hmm. um, but they were not too into Christian doctrine. In fact, they didn't believe in Christian doctrine, but they wanted Christianity as a kind of a identity uniter to set to, you might say, to set true Germans apart from, for example, Jews or Muslims or anybody else, mainly Jews at that time. And, and so when you actually read the writings of these people, they're not recognizably Christian in their theology, but they have kind of blended Christianity with Germanness to create something I call Nazified Germanity or Nazified quasi-Christianity. And these were some of the people who loved Hitler when he came along because he play, he played that same song. Um, he, he was not a believing Christian. Right. Um, he didn't have anything to do with Jesus. Um, Jesus was an inconvenience for him too, but to unite people around him by putting a thin veneer of Christianity on top of what was really German militant, racist, militarist nationalism, that was the project. And mm -hmm. I would say we have some of that going here too. Um, this thin layer of Christianity laid on top of ungodly, um, you know, nationalism and racism and 
misogyny and homophobia and uh, xenophobia, but, but lay some Christianity on top of that, put a little Christian symbol in your flag and yeah, have woo-hoo. a little prayer in your rally and boom, you know, you got it. Yeah, we cleaned it up, right. Right. So now I say in the book, could it possibly be that the people in Germany in 1930 who were buying this didn't know that this had nothing to do with Jesus, that this really was heresy? And the answer is some of them knew it, but didn't care. Others of them didn't know it. They didn't know, they couldn't tell the difference anymore between Mm. that kind of quasi-Christian Germanity and the real thing. And that was the kind of people that that people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth were arguing against, you know, during the German church struggle, saying, guys, you've entirely lost your way. You can't do this. This is not yeah. Christianity. Yeah. And in a sense, we may be at a barman, you know, kind of a 1933 moment here. It all depends on what happens in the next 18 months, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because this weekend I spent some time with my extended family and they're all from the South. Um, they're all conservative evangelicals. And at the end of the day, they're all really decent, moral human beings. And they are 100% Trumpies. They cannot understand or even perceive of a world in where their Christianity, as they know it, isn't personified in right-wing political authoritarianism. And I have I'm just at a loss for even trying to reintroduce them to something different. Um, and I know I'm not alone. I mean, I, I would guess that most of us in the deconstruction community or the post-evangelical community, or even uh, for those uh, who are scholars and researchers and Christians who may have never even been a part of that, that you know, you can recognize the difference between the way of Jesus, the way of peace, the way of servanthood, the way of compassion and inclusion with with this. Like what? What do we do? Have Have you seen any success personally with helping to open the eyes of people that we love who have been so taken captive by this Christian extremism that is expressed politically in the way that, in the beautiful way that you've described it over the last several minutes? By the way, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in the last several years, but now with this book coming out in the last several weeks with people who are saying exactly the same thing. I was sitting at a table the other day with somebody whose father was at January 6th. Holy crap. Um, didn't breach the Capitol, but he was there. Hmm. Um, and somebody else who runs a little church, a little storefront church, and at the front of the church is a full-size cutout of Trump. And that's what the people like. They love that. Um, yeah. And... Um, the best number I've seen is that it's about 30% of the U.S. population that are still all in with him. Hmm. Um, you can't win an election with 30%. You can make a lot, you can make a lot of trouble. Um, now, people that I'm talking to who know about political extremism and stuff say that um, it is going to be likely impossible to argue this 30% away from their loyalty until something cataclysmic happens like, um, I don't know, uh, and another, I don't know, maybe the 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 demise of Trump uh, by natural death or um, new evidence coming out of some a crime that cannot be explained away. It's hard to see what that might be, given everything. Um, right. Uh, but 
or or uh, or maybe a massive bloodbath of violence that is shocking enough led by that side that uh, discredits it or civil war or in other words, I mean, the Hitler spell, not to make that comparison too easily, but the Hitler spell sure. stayed with a significant chunk of the German population all the way into 1945. And and even after his death and the, and the catastrophes that he brought on Germany and the world, there were still diehards who secretly gathered in their homes and stuff and, and uh, expressed undying loyalty to him even after he was gone. Um, there's politics. Actually, one of the built-in vulnerabilities of democracy is that democracy is a is has a rationality to it. You're you like, for example, you expect people to study data and make good laws and and be reasonable and be civil and be tolerant of difference. And man, if that goes away, democracy is is at risk. Mm-hmm. But there's another dimension in which democracy is, or I mean, that is politics can be fundamentally irrational. Passions can grip people. Um, divisions can take hold and factions can become so hardened that it becomes a, a zone of excessive love and excessive hate and excessive loyalty and excessive irrationality. And uh, such such uh, moments in any country are very dangerous. And I, I really feel like we've got not a majority, but a substantial minority who are in the grip of something uh, not healthy and not rational, not arguable, like a fever that has to break and it hasn't broken yet. Mm. Well, that description reminds me of, you know, when Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace, but to, you know, to bring a sword and division. And I obviously don't believe he meant violence. I I believe Jesus was uh, nonviolent. But I think all of us in in this um demographic have experienced divisions in our family to where, you know, I can't talk to my dad because of Trump. I can't have meaningful conversations with my cousins without it going into this tribalism. Do you feel like that it is appropriate to make those divisions and to just cut off relationship? Because while on the one hand, that is, that is, I think, healthy, and it is a form of self-protection. But also, if we don't come back to these folks and go, hey, guys, you're under a spell, and I know you can't see it, but trust me, you know, this shit is not going to end well, and you are a part – you're on the bad side. Uh, I, maybe another personal question there. I mean – there is such a tension between, all right, I'm going to wash my hands of you guys because you're lost and you've been sucked into the cult Trump. But if I do that, who's going to help them? You know, who's going to say to your parents or to your cousins or your to next door neighbor, you know, maybe they can wake it up. I, I don't know. Have you seen both of those happen or maybe a better path forward for those of us who are you know, trying to look back and and really be compassionate toward our friends and family that are just so caught in this web. Um, evangelism, <laughs> evangelism doesn't seem to work here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and so I think it needs to be given up unless one is ready for a fight. Right. Mm. Um, the, the, the tension between peacemaking and trying to live in harmony with family and um, truth-telling, uh, even pleading, please, please come out of this. 
I hear about that all the time too. And, um, and you know, divisions in families over politics that are so intense that people can't talk to each other. They can't sit around the Thanksgiving table. It's really quite tragic, you know? Right. Um, right. And it's so hurtful. And especially like, there's one thing to be a grown up, and it's like, it's a peer thing, you know, but it's like, if you're 20, you feel like every one of the, your older generation relatives is all in and you're not, and you're the only one. I mean, you're talking misery on the part of a lot of young people in the country right now. And I speak to them a lot, you know, mm. um, um, I actually think that on the political front, we just need to mobilize and defeat that side until at least Trump is out of the picture. There is no single unifying figure after him that is visible at this point. So that's hopeful. Right. And he is 77 years old um, and not in the best of condition. Right. Um, uh, in terms of family relations, I think uh, – boundaries are the best advice I've, I've been able to come up with. So it's Thanksgiving and you even in advance of Thanksgiving and the normal family thing would be to have all the uncles and cousins and everybody get together. It's been tense. You say, Hey, I'd like to try to get together this year. Um, but can we keep politics off the table? Mm. And you just say, it's a no politics zone. Talk yeah. about football, talk about Ann Irma, talk about <laughs> right, the weather, <laughs> the weather, uh, talk about the, you know, how the crops are doing this year. Do anything. Just don't talk about politics. Um, and if if somebody insists on browbeating. Uh, you know, then you have to say, hey, remember, we agreed not to not to do this here. Mm -hmm, and. Mm -hmm. and and then if it happens again, then you may have to get up and leave. I mean, this is happening in dinner tables all over all the country. All over the, the place. Holidays are coming. You're right. So I would just say healthy boundaries, but try to keep the communication alive if you can. Try to keep the family a family if you can. Mm. Mm. Just bracket off certain topics. Right. Um, and meanwhile, mobilize. If you really believe that the basic diagnosis I'm, I'm offering here is right, Mobilize like you never have before, not just for a certain kind of vote, but for the defense of democratic processes and, and tradition in a country that has had a democracy, however flawed, for 240 years. Mm. That's not nothing. Right. No. Well, so beyond just voting, because I think that so many of us have taken our democracy for granted. We assumed it's just always going to be here. Sure, we might have won that election. We might have lost that election. But we really are no longer voting about, you know, tax um, issues or trickle down economics or right. even foreign policy. We are at a at a threshold of either we are going to continue to be a democracy or we are going to drift into um, a pretty extreme authoritarianism, as you said, with the Trump dynasty and their family. How do so? So those of us who are understand this besides just voting, um, what can we do? What are some practical things we can do literally within our community and within our neighborhood to change this tide um participate in local politics um school boards and uh city council things and uh public comment on various things um especially resisting authoritarian reactionary christian engagement 
where you can, you know, like mm. school boards is a major fight right now. Right. 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 Oh, gosh, especially here in Colorado. I mean, it's we have this right wing agenda in certain areas and, you know, they're coming in and passing these white Christian curricula that are run by Prager U and right. they're, they're just so full of lies. And yet they're also, as you described earlier, this white patriarchal conservative veneer of Christianity. Um, yeah. So anyways, I, I interrupted, yeah. but go on. Yeah. So, so local uh, political participation, um, also always being clear when talking with people either online or in person about the difference between policies that you disagree with versus um, fundamental threat to democracy. Mm. So like if Mitt Romney were running for president in, in 2024, uh, Democrats would almost certainly vote for uh, whoever the Democrat will be, presumably Joe Biden. But Mitt Romney, um, somebody like Mitt Romney would be need to be differentiated from somebody like Donald Trump, right? There's, there's, Republicans who still believe in democracy and Republicans who have moved to authoritarianism, we need to be able to tell the difference um, and to describe the difference consistently. Don't agree with the policies, but this person seems to still believe in democracy. Good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's sort of permission to play, but that's out the window. Right. That's right. Uh-huh. Um, so and that, you know, so that that's a. And, and then also, you know, in the book, I, I talk about um, characteristics of a healthy democracy that are listed internationally, like by Freedom House. So um, so just attuning oneself to like how a democracy works, like uh, the way election administration is done. Hey, you might volunteer if you got some time. You might volunteer to work as a poll worker because you know that the poll workers are going to be under enormous pressure again in 2024. Mm -hmm. Who's got the stomach? Um to do that and, and to protect that humble function of a free and fair locally run election, right? Mm. Um, so election administration, um, you know, vote counting. Um, in other words, people are tearing at the threads of our humble uh, democratic process. And wherever you see it, with a checklist in mind that is provided in the book, um, work on those things. Uh, because it is true, we can no longer take our democracy for granted. It is, it is not something that can be done by just a handful of people who care. At this point, it's all hands on deck. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I know you don't have a crystal ball, but when you look at least to the future presidential election, and, and you know, this is not discounting all the more authoritarianism that we see throughout the Republican Party. But if we can cut the head off the snake, um, where can Joe Biden beat Donald Trump or do we need another candidate? Um, I, I know that's probably outside the window of opportunity at this point. But what are you seeing um, when you're looking at that 2024 election and the 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 contrast between electing someone who is going to protect democracy and the potential for Donald Trump to come in once again. And in my belief, if he comes in, he will never leave. Um, is that going to happen? I don't think so. Um, the uh, 2022 elections, as I say in the book, gave me some hope because 
the Trumpists, the mini Trumps, almost universally lost. Um, now, that was a little closer to the events of the insurrection. Mm-hmm. But in Arizona, Carrie Lake lost and Blake Masters lost. And in Pennsylvania, uh, Doug Mastriano lost. Um, and in in all the swing states, um, the anti-Democrats lost. In Georgia, what was interesting was you have a pro-democracy Republican governor and secretary of state, and they were challenged by Trumpists, and they, those, those Trumpists were beaten handily. Hmm. The Republicans won, but these are people who actually, I mean, they held firm, which is one reason why Trump is going to be on trial in Georgia. Um, Trump and 18 other people. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't believe that in a national contest um, that especially with the swing states largely led by Democrats right now, um, the six swing states, you know, uh, I don't mm-hmm. believe that in a national contest Trump can can win. Um, also, the Electoral Count Act was rewritten in the last few years, um, making it impossible for the vice president to be manipulated the way that Trump tried to manipulate Pence. And in this case, we, we would have a Democratic vice president anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, I think we may have some structural things that can help prevent it from happening, like like um, having the election stolen by Trump who, with a minority of votes. Um I also don't see any evidence that he will ever, he never has, that he ever will have a majority of the people with him. Um, now, Biden, I uh, respect him a lot. That I, I, I wish there was a stronger, more compelling unity candidate who is right. 20, 20 years younger. <laughs> right. Um, or even even Hillary. I mean, I was talking to my best friend this weekend who's a Democrat in Arkansas, and we were driving by the Bill and Hillary Clinton Museum in Fayetteville. Yeah, I've been by there. Yeah. I mean, could she not step in and beat Biden? I, I, I'm not saying that I she's my favorite human being in the world, but I do think that literally everything that she told us in 2016 came to be true. Um, is she a more compelling candidate? I don't think so. Um, okay. But mainly, mainly um, the Democratic coalition is fragile. And if the only way Biden doesn't run for president is if he steps aside, mm. uh, there's not going to be a successful primary challenge. Yeah. So he yeah. would have to l- look at his health and look at the overall situation and decide. Also, yeah. let's let's not forget uh, there will be some trials between now and November of Trump. He could end up in jail. He really right. could. Yeah, um, yeah, including in state courts, and there were there was some polling. I don't know how well it's going to hold up. That some significant share of Republican voters would draw a line about voting for somebody who was a convicted felon. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there there is a line somewhere with them. It's it's that it's that. Yeah, it's not sexual assault. Well, that's not the thirty percent who's all in. It would be the rest of the Republican voters, right? Yeah. Um, I do think that that 30 percent, including some of the people that you've mentioned, uh, if he's in jail in Georgia, waiting to be in jail in Georgia, in uh, New York, uh, waiting to be in jail in D.C., waiting to be in jail in Florida, they will still vote for him. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, uh, even more so, I, I, I think. Right. But there is there are some reasonable Republican voters still surviving mm-hmm. who who are who would not. So the legal process appears to be. You know, lumbering along, um, things could look a lot different uh, a year from now than they do now. 
Um, it's also the chance he's going to be stripped of his financial empire with what's happening in New York right now. Right. Um, you know, his his little faux campaign, as well as his constant legal stuff, it all costs money. If he I mean, it is imaginable that that money will dry up. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see. So yeah. we don't know. Um, I think there's a lot of Republicans. I know there's a lot of Republicans that would like him to be ushered from the stage so that somebody else could have a shot at being uh, being their candidate. But but they're not they can't take them on. They're not brave enough or they don't think they can win. The numbers are not with them. Yeah. So um, so that's how I see the politics of it right now. Well, Dr. Gushy, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, we were talking about your book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. I've been reading it. It's fascinating because it offers an opportunity to take off a little bit of the American blinders and and realize that there is a, a rising tide of authoritarianism that has linked arms with a form of Christianity throughout throughout the world. And it offers some really tangible ways to push back against that, to resist uh, that movement. And so I just thank you so much for the book. For those who haven't quite got it yet, um, obviously Amazon and all those good things, but but can you direct them to, to contact and, and get in contact with you and or pick up that book online? Um, uh, my website is uh, davidpgushy.com. Um, the, I mean, the quickest way is probably Amazon to be there the next day. There's also going to be an audio book coming out, I think even oh, great. tomorrow. Um, uh, I like, I support local bookstores and you might go to your local bookstore, including Barnes and Noble. Apparently some Barnes and Nobles have, have it in stock. Um, and by now Barnes and Noble is kind of a local bookstore, right? Compared to Amazon. <laughs> right. so, so you might try Barnes and Noble. You might try your local independent bookseller. Uh, there's a bookstore I always try to support called Hearts and Minds Bookstore. That's an independent shop. They're offering a mm. nice discount. Nice. So um, on social media, I can be found at DP Gushy pretty much all over. Okay, Perfect. Well, thank you again. It's uh, always insightful. It's always a little bit traumatic, too, you know, because you're you have boots on the ground from a scholarly perspective, from a research perspective, looking at trends and trying to determine and figure out who are we and and where are we going and and who will we be in five years and 10 years? And, And some of that information is a little bit, tra- uh, a little bit uh, traumatic in terms of the potential for democracy to fall. So, thank you so much for your work, uh, for your passion for this, and and also for your Christian testimony. Um, so much of Christianity today has been corrupted and and polluted. And I am always grateful for people who say they love Jesus, who are standing up for the marginalized, and frankly, standing up for democracy, for goodness sakes. So thank you for your work and for your mission and for your scholarship. I really appreciate it. Uh, You're very welcome. And I appreciate talking with you again today, Gary. Thanks so much. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? 
Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.